3: And, yes, culture leads us in strange places, sometimes delightfully strange, sometimes not so delightfully. Uh, But I think we're going to go some delightful places today with you. Uh, A little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about a new movie in which Nicolas Cage plays a version of Nicolas Cage and also a different version of Nicolas Cage. It's really complicated, but we will be able to explain it to you in a very lucid manner when the time comes. Uh, And I don't know Advance Alert it's a movie that I've really really enjoyed probably more than I really expected to too we'll also talk about Chris Pratt because I don't think we've ever really discussed this on the news but people just hate Chris Pratt I mean there's like a certain group of people who really hate Chris Pratt uh, and question all of his choices all of his life choices most recently his plans to show a uh, list of I think about 10 movies to his kids on a camping trip uh, and we'll talk a little bit about those movies and just also generally how you approach that whole question, what kids do or don't need to, to see uh, at certain ages. But we're going to begin, and we don't do this very often, but we're going to begin with the fact that, yes, Beyonce has dropped a brand new single. Uh, it is a single that I think was initially thought of as speaking very specifically to the so-called Great Resignation. Uh, it uh, on to, I'm talking to you on today, Friday, although because of preemption, you're probably going to hear the show at some other time. Uh, but it certainly seems to have a little bit of added weight and meaning uh, today. So uh, all of that is to come here. But first of all, let me just tell you who's on the show. Uh, Raquel Benedict claims to be, I, I think we, I think we agreed that we wouldn't say claims anymore. Ra- Ra- Raquel Benedict. <laughs> it's
1: objectively true.
3: Yes, Ra- Raquel Benedict is the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Uh, she's the host of the Right Good <laughs> podcast. That's R-I-T-E space G-U-D podcast. Sam Haddelman works in um, music public relations and hosts the Sam Haddelman Show, which is actually spelled exactly the way it sounds at Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. He is also haunted by a version of himself. He, known as Billy. Uh, <laughs> Billy is from 1990 and is constantly uh, taunting uh, Bill about the fact that he's no longer the rebel and the convention defying wild man that he used to be. Um, so um, that was a little meta joke. We'll explain it to you later. Uh, You're in my
0: dreams. <laughs> How do you know what I dreamt last night? Colin? I know.
3: I know. I remember i we all remember Billy uh, we're not happy to have him back either so um no. so we're going to talk begin by talking uh, about beyonce. The song is called "Break my Soul uh, It is a song that credits two other songs. We can also talk a little bit about that uh, for some sampling. I actually think one of the songs they probably could have not credited and survived any legal challenge. But uh, we're going to play a little bit of the song, and then we're lucky, of course, to have Sam Handelman with us right now. Uh, but let's play some "Break My Soul," and then we'll get talking. There's a whole lot of people in the house Trying to smoke with a yak in your mouth uh, So um, we could play the whole thing but it's a little, little bit over four and a half minutes uh, the way club music tends to be a little bit longer uh, and so Sam Edelman, uh obviously uh, among us you are the resident pop music expert a hip-hop expert, etc. Just give me overall your reactions what would you tell somebody uh, about this song if they hadn't heard it yet?
2: Uh, you can't beat Beyonce like it doesn't matter what you do it doesn't matter how you prepare. It doesn't matter if you drop a surprise album the week before. You, you just can't beat her. It doesn't matter if you're a detractor, a fan, a stan, a parent, a kid, a baby. Like, you have to recognize that she is so good at what she does. And actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is house music, not club music. I'm not yeah. an electronic guy. I think it is uh, house music, too. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think that, like, you know, on the Song of the Summer show, we were talking about how music, pop music specifically is pushing that 80s revival sound. And I feel like Beyonce and Drake, between the two of them, have really just bursted through the gates back to back. And I feel like music has been at, at its least dancey in like the last few years, other than like you know you dancing to Camila Bay or whatever. Um, well, but continue
3: I, to taunt <laughs> me about that.
2: But um, I think that this is a really welcome change, and I love that people were kind of lukewarm or really excited about it. Like whenever there's division in music, you know someone's doing something interesting people have opinions and yeah i thought that this was a fantastic leeway into her upcoming album all right so
3: raquel benedict i don't think we've ever had a conversation about music before uh, i don't even know Thanks where so to begin much. with you so I, uh, but... I think the
1: only thing i would say is that it doesn't strike me as very 80s this is pure early 90s
3: yeah, I, I I would probably, I'm not the kind of expert that Sam is, but I would probably put it somewhere around there. One thing that I would say is that house music, club music, however we want to categorize these things, it never really entirely goes away. And one of the never. things, one of the ways that I know this, weirdly enough, is that, uh, you know, we use music very thematically on the show a, a lot, and quite frequently I'm the one who goes looking for it. And so if we're doing a show about Occam's Razor, uh, and I go on title, there's like six songs called Occam, I'm just making this up, but there's like six songs called Occam, Razor and five of them are house music with no lyrics. You know, I mean, they're just, they're of no use to me because nobody ever says or sings anything. But it just, there's a tremendous amount of this stuff that's kind of out there. I don't know how it gets used or whether it ever gets heard, but partly because the stuff that's not all that good can be made pretty cheaply. But, but I don't know. I mean, is it, is it anywhere, Raquel, in your summer summer soundtrack? Uh, and I, I know, into today in particular, we're thinking of other things that could break a person's soul. Is this, you know, does it have some kind of potential to become an anthem for you?
1: I mean, I, it's a great song. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a banger. I don't know. Um, for me personally, I mean, I I, I like it. I. I I guess what I'll say about house music is it never goes away cuz people still like to party mm-hmm. even in the worst of circumstances.
3: Absolutely. Uh and there are drugs to help them do it. So Absolutely. um So uh so Bill, yeah, how, how about you?
0: I like it. Um I at risk of uh you know having the beehive come after me. I have to say that so far, I've only listened to it a few times, but so far, it's not one of my favorite Beyonce songs. Um, I thought Lemonade was just a stone cold masterpiece. Um, I'm not, and of course, this is just one song instead of an album. I don't know if this is going to have that type of resonance, but you know, I'm not being like too harsh here because i do think it's a fun upbeat song we can hear those rhythms i'll throw it it's obviously very housey but i'll throw in another genre that i feel like i hear in it a little bit which is uh soca which is a african caribbean kind of hybrid genre with some reggae influence to it and you know it's it's very very upbeat with a lot of synth- synthetics and, and electronic sounds and to, to double down on my you know little theory here about this, I found that there is a video on Instagram from a couple of years ago of Jay-Z dancing to some soca music. So I, you know, I feel like that kind of proves my point. But yeah, it's a fun song. Obviously, we've talked already how this idea of you won't break my soul is you know something that people might find empowering right now I think it's important to say it's also a song about you know the great work resignation of uh, the 2020s and people's resistance to stifling jobs and oppressive relationships and that is mentioned specifically in some of the lyrics so I could see myself you know driving home from work and, you know, just kind of blasting that as a way to blast some of the problems of the workday off of my soul.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, Bill, I'd share a uh... First of all, I mean, I think we all have to sort of acknowledge, as Sam said at the beginning. I mean, Beyonce is in a very, very small group uh, of American musical, popular musical performers in history. You know, in terms of the level of talent, the number of things that she can do extraordinarily well, the kind of energy that she can create with music and with dance, we're really talking about, you know, a very, very small, small cohort of people who can be discussed in the same breath. Um, mm-hmm. You know, having said that, um, you know, one one problem with house music is it's kind of intentionally repetitious. Uh, so, uh, and, and it's also heavily produced. Uh, and in some ways, I feel like the stuff that I really like about Beyonce uh, it, is, in fact, a little bit obscured by a song like this. Uh, and and I, I may grow to love it. I may, may grow to like it better. I mean, it's it's a really interesting song in a lot of ways. But, and the other thing that I would just quickly say, and I'm going to throw it back to Sam, but uh, is, and I hope I'm not forcing a Papoulian through line here because that's that's an abomination, of course. But, um, you know, there's sort of a way in which Beyonce and Nicolas Cage could be talked about as people who kind of shift in and out of different persona, you know, and, and in, you know, in the case of, of Beyonce even adopting you know a name like sasha Fierce or something like that there's a, there's a way in which there isn 't one stable identity uh, One of the things that the, the both of these performers do uh, pretty well uh, is keep people guessing be keep people uh, a little bit off base uh, as sam sam as you said she's you can 't prepare for her in advance because she's she 's going to yeah. do whatever she 's going to do.
2: She's a, she's an all sport athlete. Like she went to the Country Music Awards a couple of years and th- gave a fantastic performance. She was rapping on the Carters. She's making house music now, and like you just can't beat her. And, and the thing is, even on like and here's like a little bit of an industry inside or something like maybe people wouldn't realize is that she's going back to the traditional rollout. Like even on the music industry side, she loves to break things and then put them back together. She released a song on a Tuesday. She gave us a month heads up before the album. Like she's doing a traditional rollout and it's really planned. And I I don't think this is going to be the only taste of Beyonce's new music that we're going to get in the next couple weeks. But for me, I'm excited about the direction she takes it in. All
3: right. We were going to play a song from the uh, Drake album, which just came out a few days before her single and is also House Music. But we're not going to do it because we don't have enough time and also because we're always kind of permanently mad at Drake. It's an old beef. It it took a long time to explain. But um, we're going to instead segue to Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, I said everybody kind of hates Chris Pratt. uh, And he has an interesting coming-of-age movie marathon that he's going to have with his uh, nine-year-old son, uh, uh, Jack, who's going to go, go on a 10-day camping trip. And some other, while they're on a camping trip, they're going to watch a lot of movies. I guess that's how people camp these days. Um, but the list of movies, and, and he put it up on social media so people could hate him some more, uh, are, includes First Blood, Dumb and Dumber, White Fang, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Rudy, Toy Soldiers, Red Dawn, Bloodsport, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Monty Python, and the Holy Grail. So, Raquel... I don't know. <laughs> I don't have too much of a problem with that list, but a lot of people did. What was your reaction?
1: I think Bloodsport is a perfect movie to show a nine-year-old boy, considering I'm pretty sure that movie was written by a nine-year-old boy. It has a nine-year-old boy's understanding of the world. It is perfect. Yeah, I I truly don't see the problem. With this list. I think watching R-rated movies as a kid is a rite of passage. And I think it's perfectly fine, you know, given the movie. Obviously, nothing like too shocking or disturbing. I I wouldn't let a child watch, I don't know, hereditary or anything. But (laughs) but I mean, what little what kid didn't kind of get excited about horror movies? Kids a lot of kids these days will throw like Michael Myers themed birthday parties. They love Chucky. Like it It's fun. I I can't help but suspect it's because people are really mad about Chris Pratt because he's part of a church that has some really homophobic beliefs, and they're kind of transferring that frustration to something that's truly, really frivolous and and really silly.
3: I would also I now that you said that it was just a brilliant insight. I would say Dumb and Dumber could have been written by a 9-year-old boy or maybe a Most group Most of those movies could have Yeah, been maybe, a by of, maybe a group of maybe a group of 9-year-old boys in a writers' room could write Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean see, first of all, I know that it's a right-wing paranoid John Millius fantasy. Uh, But I really love that 1984 Red Dawn and and that's a perfect movie for nine year old boys because it's about going up in the woods and living by yourselves and shooting at invaders, you know, who are messing up your town uh, and calling yourself Wolverines and having like the best time ever, except
1: when you have to kill one of your friends. But uh... It's 100% the kind of games a bunch of nine year old boys probably did play during the Cold War.
3: Absolutely. During the Cold War, like yesterday, some nine year old kids <laughs> were playing that game. Uh, all right. So, yeah, Bill Useman, uh, what's your take on Chris Pratt and his cinematic parenting style?
0: Well, on Twitter, it was a Pratt fall. Oh, you, you, see, no. you see what I did there, oh. right? Hey, I'm a dad, and that's a dad joke. <laughs> and as a dad who had a nine year old son, It's not the list I would have chosen, uh, except for maybe uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is brilliant. And, you know, like I can't I wouldn't be able to get enough of that. And I could see me and my nine year old son chortling for hours and hours over it. Um, I think that people love to hate each other on Twitter. Uh, Colin, you and I were just talking about that on social media today. I think Mm. how obnoxious Twitter makes people. Um, although I'm not sure, you know, if it's a, uh, uh, chicken and an egg thing, are people obnoxious because they're on Twitter or does Twitter give them a place to be obnoxious? But, you know, I think part of the problem was that he called them coming of age films and I'm just sort of looking at that (laughs) list and I'm going, well, wait a minute, where's stand by me? Mm. Where's my girl? Where's all the president's men? Uh, That that last one was a joke, by the way. Um, So I think that was part of the problem of of how it was framed. But, you know, I kind of want to say to the people who were, you know, like giving him a lot of grief. He doesn't care, obviously, but being so self-righteous about our rated movies, like how about we start like staying out of each other's personal decisions. That has a little bit of resonance today as well. But you know, just this, this, this culture that we are creating, where everybody has to slam people for personal life decisions they're making, like, I'm okay with slamming people for things that have political resonance. Mm -hmm. I'm there for that all day. But for something about like, what movies you're showing your kids, get out of here with that.
3: Right. I mean, I don't have a leg to stand on. I mean, I think my son, Joey, uh, probably maybe both of us would say that our favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard and has been for (laughs) most of his life. And, you know, on the 4th of July, we typically watch Independence Day, you know, and listen to the great Bill Pullman speech. Uh, And um, I mean, you know, this is something that that I think parents and kids do in different ways. Uh, It's a way that you bond. It's a way that you, there are certain movies that you just sort of watch over and over again. And if you have a certain kind of kid, you know, a lot of them are going to be action movies. Or Yeah, and not
0: all kids are the same. And so maybe like, he knows his son better than we do?
3: Right. No, I mean if, God forbid. W- when I was a kid if somebody showed me three or four of these movies I probably would have had to go to the hospital. I was I was not somebody <laughs> who who really was very comfortable with scariness or violence or anything for a really long time. Um so Sam, um yeah, I mean what was your reaction to all this?
2: Um I, you know, as a former child, I it was it was, <laughs> it was funny like when I looked at this list the one that creeped yeah. me out was Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I think that's like the creepiest, oddest movie. And it probably is. The- I love it. No, it, it tra- rules. No, it traumatized me as a nine-year-old. You want to talk about <laughs> movies that traumatized me, like the trucker scene and I, I can never watch that movie again. Um, but it, it was also funny to see Monty Python and the Holy grail. Cause I remember the first time I ever played hooky in the fourth grade, I spent the entire day watching Monty Python and the Holy grail. Uh, fantastic. The, like, uh, the first movie my mom ever showed me was airplane. Um, I, and also I had like on demand in my room and my dad is not tech savvy enough to put parental controls on it. So I was watching like (laughs) the Godfather, Scarface, Pulp Fiction. And I feel like, honestly, the react like, I think it was a net positive for me. Like, I feel like older people are always so shocked when I like older stuff. And I'm like, it's because I had access to a television, not enough friends and too much time. And I think that like, I think it's, a like I said, a net positive. I actually think it made me understand a lot of real-world things a lot better, if that makes sense. And it was always it was always the PG movies that creeped me out. Like, James and the Giant Peach scared the pants off me at age nine, <laughs> but I was fine watching Scarface. So I, I, I think people were just mad at Chris Pratt in general.
3: Everybody's afraid of Polar Express. I mean, yeah, there are movies <laughs> like that that are just creepy, so creepy. weird that you can't deal with them. Yeah, and yes. I, also, I also feel like we communicate. I mean, Raquel, we sort of... I don't know, we tell stories to each other often through movies and and, and if you're spending a lot of time with somebody, it's like at a certain point they almost have to know the movies that you know. I mean, you have to know each other's movies a little bit. I mean, I, you know, speaking of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, I don't know, shrubbery came up in my house a couple of months ago, and so I immediately <laughs> started talking about Roger the Shrubber and uh, and, and the necessity of getting a two-level one with a pat- nice path down the middle. And then I had to explain it all <laughs> uh, because the other person hadn't really mastered the nuances of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But, Raquel, we do that, right? Movies are part oh, of the kind of text that we we read to each other or reference to each other.
1: Right. I mean my my dad and my uh, my dad bonded with me and my brother over like sci-fi and and fantasy. We grew up on Star Trek and he'd read the Lord of the Rings to us. My mother and I would bond by watching Columbo old episodes of Columbo. (laughs) And I'd, and I'd rag on the bizarre 1970s fashion, but secretly I loved all of it. Um, (laughs) And there's something kind of fun about, I'm sure being able to pass some of that stuff and that affection down to your kids. And maybe I sound a little corny, but I do think it's valuable in exposing your kids to older media, to give them a sense of, what culture was in the previous generation i think there's a tendency today to only focus on the this eternal now and forget that anything made before like 2012 even exists so so as cheesy as these movies are i I think there is something really sweet about watching like a bunch of cheesy 80s movies with your kid i think it's totally fine
3: Alright, we gotta take a break here, but oh Rick, one more thing. One more thing. You were saying that uh <laughs> I'm sorry I had to do that. I'm, thing? Re- I'm really sorry that I did that. All right, we'll take a little break for real and we will come back, we will talk about Nicholas Cage and his the unbearable weight of his talent. Explode.
0: Oh! Last go, last go. oh. Take off this load I'll my belt and make it go I'm about to be slow Take off this
1: load
0: Then it back to the bubble make it go
2: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare
0: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare
3: All right, we are back, uh, and we are talking to Raquel Benedict, uh, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction the host of the right good, that means good, podcast. Sam Hadelman works in the music public relations, hosts the Sam Hadelman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Bill Useman is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. Nicholas Cage is not on the show today, although he could walk in at any minute because that's kind of how Nicholas Cage rolls. He could be anywhere, uh, and he could be making any of 100 or so movies, uh, which is what he's done. He's incredibly prolific. He's also, I think, had one of the more bizarre careers ever most most actors who who last a long time and work a lot have maybe three discrete periods uh, of their work lives Nicholas Cage has had like eight discrete periods of his work lives. He's had at least two pronounced commercial and artistic slumps uh, that were kind of fatal-looking for a while, and then seems to be able to crawl out of that hole again and again. He takes all of those layers, all of that burden, uh, into the movie The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Uh, It is a meta-action comedy. Uh, It stars him as him. There's also a younger version of him. uh, And it's also not— not really him. None of it's really exactly him, but just close enough to make it interesting and funny and uncomfortable. So let's, before we discuss it here, a little clip uh, you're going to hear. I guess I can tell you this much, which is that Nicolas Cage, part of the thing that happens is he gets invited to Majorca uh, to basically... Entertained for a huge sum of money, a very wealthy man, Pedro, played by Pedro Pascal. Uh, and then he gets recruited by CIA agents who have a different plan for him. So um, here we go. You're going to, uh, in particular, hear Tiffany Haddish uh, as Vivian. Uh, let's play
2: B1.
0: Mr. Cage, we're with the U.S. government.
2: We need your help. The man you're staying with is the head of a violent international arms cartel. Wait, 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 wait. Hobby. He's a ruthless mother He started small, coastal Spain, but then he got greedy.
0: Trying to expand his operations, east, west, trail of dead bodies in his wake. Javi Gutierrez. Yes, Javi. I don't think we're talking about the same hobby. We're definitely talking about it's the, the, the same, same f- guy, Okay, man. okay, so you're a CIA, some kind of intelligence, right, and your job is to read people, yeah? Well, as a thespian, that is also my job, to understand people's characters, to feel what they're feeling, which is how I know that hobby is not a gun deal. You're saying your acting ability trumps five years of hard data collected by the world's finest intelligence agency? My nouveau shamanic acting ability? You better f-ing believe it. Oh, hey, guys. Hey, this sucks. Uh, uh, Nicolas Cage's nouveau shamanic acting ability has determined that we got the wrong guy. So let's pack up our and f-ing go
3: home. All right. Uh, So, yeah, you're also hearing um, Ike Barinholtz as uh, Martin, the other voice on that clip. Uh, So, Bill Usman, tell us about how, I mean, I think we have to go to the media studies person on this right away, because this, in a way, I mean, it's sort of a buddy film and an action thing and uh, kind of commentary on the business itself, uh, a la The Player, a movie it slightly resembles at times. Uh, But, you know, it really is sort of an interesting little stirring of the media studies pot.
0: Yeah, um, Jonathan McNichol and I almost broke up because I said action films are not one of my favorite genres. And yeah. I think, but, the, but I do like this film a lot. And one of the things that I like a lot about it is what you're saying, Colin, is how it messes with genres. It messes with uh, our distance from, you know, who we think people are on the screen versus who they might actually be and how much of that is also artifice. I enjoyed it at first as just kind of a fun comedy. There were parts of it I find really, really funny. I was laughing out loud. Um, But the more I think about it, there's even more layers to it than that, because it really gets into a lot of stuff about career anxiety and what's next and how can I prove myself? Uh, at one point, somebody says to him, like, it must have been nice to have been a star <laughs> and the the terror of that past tense and all the stuff about, am I a hack? Am I a real actor? What's the difference between being a movie star and an actor? Um, what's the difference between my public persona and who I am on the screen? And there was just, not that long ago, there was a profile Of Nick Cage in um, GQ where Martin Scorsese is talking about Nicolas Cage's face and he says it's visible it's open and it translates into an overall sense of unease the conflict is an inner questioning will I be redeemed have I done enough and I think this film really brings that out really nicely in some kind of interesting ways where it's so much actually about Nick Cage, even though it is in this whole kind of meta within meta action comedy genre uh, hybrid that it's created.
3: Yeah. You know, Raquel, I want to hear your overall thoughts about this, but I also maybe want to begin by discussing with you. I mean, I was trying to imagine whether anybody else could have made this movie. Could you make this movie with anybody else? I mean, there are people like Liam Neeson who've made some really questionable career choices, but they're not particularly <laughs> funny or interesting or variegated or they're just, it actually kind of makes the same bad career choice over and over again, you know. But there's something about Nicolas Cage, the entire time he's been doing this stuff, he's been really interesting about doing it or really weird about doing it. And and there's a way in which, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm kind of backdating this check but i sort of feel like he's been winking at us a little bit for a while with some of the stuff that he does but i i want to know also just how you feel about the film
1: i mean i i think it's a fun movie like it's a fun popcorn movie it, it didn't it didn't feel quite as deep as i feel like it was going for mm. i know that it it felt like it was going for something that's very meta meta and and very kind of thoughtful but i i feel like there was And granted, I I shouldn't expect this from a movie about Nicolas Cage, but it is mostly about how amazing Nick Cage is and every character he meets talks (laughs) about how amazing and wonderful he is. And a lot of the sort of Nicolas Cage as a meme fandom, part of that is ironic. Part of that is like, look how weird this dude is. Like, look at this totally crazy performance. There is a part of, he is really genuinely an amazing actor, but a lot of the time you're watching him just be kind of wacky. (laughs) Which there's sort of a a morbid fascination or an ironic look at the look at the sideshow side to that when you're when you're watching those kinds of Nick Cage movies. I mean, sometimes he does a movie like Pig where he's really just brilliant. It's this meditation on grief, but. When that the ads for that movie first came out people were like oh that's hilarious i'm totally gonna see that you know or or i mean he does a movie like that but he'll also do a movie like willie's wonderland where he's fighting like a haunted chucky e. cheese or something like that um <laughs> I, I, I i couldn't when i was watching this i was comparing it a little bit to um being john malkovich which is another mm-hmm. kind of big movie where a famous actor plays himself and in being john malkovich i feel like there's a lot more of this like self-deprecation in a way that's kind of harsh and mean like Malkovich makes himself look like a like kind of a whiny jerk in it Mm. a lot and and there's not so much of that with Cage he's kind of a goofball but he's a good-natured goofball and granted like why would I expect him to do that you know
3: yeah, I, I first of all, another movie that I thought of was The Life Aquatic with Steve Zusu, which is a lot of, about a lot of the things that Bill's talking about. Uh, you know, it's about somebody who feels like he's hit a wall, somebody who, who's fairly horrible and kind of just a uh, horrible nar- narcissist. But he's also, at one point, he actually says, he's standing on a balcony with, I think, Angelica Huston, and he goes, am I ever going to be any good and again? again? <laughs> you know, just like, is, is this what it's going to come to? Is this, uh, and, and the movie does ask some of those questions. And, Raquel, I just want to stay with you for a second on this because— and I don't want to use this to defend the movie because I think the thing that you're saying is really true, that this could have been kind of a slightly deeper exploration of some of the questions that it it kind of bats around like a, a cat playing with a, a catnip mouse. But there's also a way in which they very cleverly Make the same mistake that they are talking about their characters making. What I mean by this is the ultimately the two leads wind up having these conversations about making a real strong character character-driven movie that really, you know, asks some big questions for, you know, more sensitive and mature audiences, and then gradually gets seduced into the idea, well no, it's gotta have a trailer moment, it's gotta have this, it's gotta have that. You know, it's really gotta really be the movie that they're talking about making is kind of the movie that we start to see. You know, there's a way in which the the Movie we're watching starts making some of the same kind of you know I, I don't know uh, audience courting gestures that that they're talking about making.
1: Yeah, except I don't think it really started off as the serious character drama so much. Like it, like I'm. Not, I know what I'm. Sound like I'm dragging the movie, and it's not a bad movie. It's it's not bad. It is a perfectly entertaining way to pass the time. It's just. I feel like it's not quite as deep as people are giving it credit for. And I think that's that, okay. Yeah, yeah not I think everything that's, has to be deep. Sometimes right. it can just be fun.
3: I think that's fair. I um and it's I I would agree, and I enjoyed it tremendously. Anyway, we haven't yet spoken about uh, Pedro Pascal. Uh, currently, despite having one of the more attractive faces in, in show business, wearing a helmet all the time as the Mandalorian. Many of us remember him also from from Game of Thrones. Uh, here he does play Javi Gutierrez. Uh, let's play a clip of him and Cage talking. This is B2Cat. In terms
0: of genre, I, I, I like comedies, but not when it's just two people sitting around, oh, talking. Oh, man, I can't stand talky comedies. You gotta have some plot to drive it forward.
2: Nick, listen. You know what I was thinking? Maybe we could have, like, a paranoid thriller angle.
0: Ooh, paranoid angle. Excellent. Like, see those two guys over there? They've been watching us. Right, right. Wait, have they been watching us? I don't know. Have they? <laughs> Did you see that? They just looked over at us.
1: <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> Oh
0: <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? No, 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 maybe it was just a coincidence. I will look again. Are you ready? No, don't make eye contact. That's how you spoke him. Um, no, that's how you spoke a bear. That's right. That is how you spoke a bear. I apologize. <laughs>
3: So, Sam, I know just last week you were dropping acid in Mallorca. This must have really spoken (laughs) very powerfully uh, to you. Uh, But, yeah, yeah, give me your take on the movie.
2: Um, I think this is going to be my first Papoulian through line. Am I saying that right? Yes, you Um, are. to, To the last segment, I can remember clear as day um as i said i watch a lot of movies and i was like a kid and a lot of my cousins are about like 10 15 years older than me and i'll never forget this i was like 13 and i was bragging to my cousins i was like i've seen every movie ever you could let's go do trivia like i got this and my cousin looked me dead in the face and he said have you seen con air and after that i've been on a revenge tour to try to watch every movie i can um (laughs) i thought it was brilliant and actually i thought it was really emotional i almost thought it was more emotional for me than it was funny and the thing that like really drew me was the relationship between cage and his daughter i thought that that was actually like really touching throughout the entire time i was like this this shouldn't make me feel this way this is like a dumb (laughs) meta meta inside a meta inside a box movie with nicholas cage like i shouldn't feel like really touched by the character development between the relationship between the daughter and the and her dad. But yeah, I kind of thought this was brilliant. I might be just a victim of the internet. And, you know, loving Nick Cage ever since my cousin scarred me. And after seeing Mandy, like, I think Nick Cage can do whatever he wants. I think he's such a weird unicorn in pop culture. Um, you know, he's related to Francis Ford Copeland some way. He's made bad movies, great movies. He's stolen the Declaration of Independence. Like, I thought all that zaniness got wrapped up into a movie that didn't do too much but just did enough. And as the Nicolas Cage expert now, it kind of reminded me of Raising Arizona a little bit. I don't know if any of you guys ever saw that. Of course. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it reminded me a lot of Raising Arizona, maybe the dynamic between Cage and the the child. But, yeah, I was a big fan.
3: Well, you know, Sam, a couple of things here just to react to what you said. First of all, one thing about Nick Cage is there's a way in which – You know, when you describe something that he did in a movie like steal the declaration of independence, you know, his real life includes I think he at one point bought a dinosaur head. Uh, like a real dinosaur head in real life the like turned from that, Mongolia yeah yeah and that it turned out mm-hmm. to be stolen or something and and because he's had all these tax problems it came out in discovery I mean you know, the IRS wound up knowing everything he'd ever done you know so, so it's sometimes you know one of the reasons the cage is kind of perfect for this treatment is because in fact he, he is that guy he's he's the guy who would buy a dinosaur head like in, in real life for, for God knows what reasons reason. and then I would also say it's kind of a double baboolian through line to Chris Pratt because a lot of This movie is about Cage being very didactic in a very unpleasant way with his daughter, forcing her to watch movies she's not interested in, forcing her to watch you know German expressionist movies she doesn't care about, (laughs) and and then they kind of they make peace over Paddington Two, which is kind of a huge theme. uh, In the Paddington Two is like a a motif that kind of. I think we should probably do a nose episode about Paddington Two. Now I feel like it's you know so many people have told me so many wonderful things about it, I've never seen it, but but Bill, we should say a little something about Pedro Pascal because he's really kind of emerging as a very interesting actor and and the kind of I don't know endearingness and vulnerability that he he puts out there uh in this movie was something i hadn't seen him do before kind of be charming and funny and stuff like that
0: Oh i found him very uh vulnerable and endearing and and warm and fuzzy in the mandalorian also um but other than that i had actually forgotten that he was the mandalorian because <laughs> you know as jonathan pointed out He's always in a helmet. Yep. Um, yeah, he's great in it. And you earlier, uh, Colin, you referred to it as a buddy film. And I think maybe you were the first one to say in our emails that the chemistry between um, Pascal and Cage is is really, really great. It's one of the things uh, that carries the film. I think the scenes where they've taken LSD are actually really, really funny when they're confronted by this wall, and I won't say anything more about that, but yeah, he's, he's great in it. The, the chemistry between the two of them is great, and if I could just for a second go, go, go back to, to, to what you just said about Paddington 2, because this gets into uh, the media studies question you asked me earlier. The other thing that I liked about this is it's also a movie about movies, and about the breaking down of artificial designations of high and low culture, you know, so you can have the German expressionist films, which are just kind of automatically accepted as worthy and high quality, and then you've got Paddington Two, and they talk about Croods Two, um, and you know, that's the stuff that's too easily. You know I come from a cultural studies perspective too easily dismissed as just trashy unworthy material rather than stuff that has its own uh you know kind of vital life of its own and what's interesting about it is that that's Cage's career he's he's gone back and forth between those things maybe it was for monetary reasons and then he gets pulled back into you know more of an art film but you know, I, I I like the way it it gets meta even about like the difference between quality and you know trashy film culture.
3: Yeah, and the, I think another thing about that too, and kind of hilariously, first of all, because he's made over a hundred movies. You know, you can have seen twenty Nicholas Cage movies and not overlap with somebody else who's seen twenty Nicholas Cage mm-hmm. movies. Um, and there's actually, you know, you mentioned Crudes too. I think it's the CIA agents who get into an argument about Crudes too, yeah. or, or they they don't see eye to eye about Crudes too. These two CIA agents who are trying to sort of suborn him into into their plans. Um, and you know, I mean, it, you know, Raquel in a way, it kind of does get back to the Chris Pratt conversation too, because somewhere in those hundred movies are some movies that I've never seen that really might be kind of interesting to see. Uh, that, you know, some of the, I, I, I am told that, I mean, you know, he went through this really bad period quite recently where a lot of stuff went direct to like Redbox or something. You know? <laughs> it was like never shown anywhere or something. But apparently there, there may be some movies in there that are worth seeing. And it, it I mean, to Bill's point, there's this kind of auto curation that goes on before we really get to make up our minds on our own about certain things.
1: I mean, there is that. I, I am a little, I would like to maybe put an asterisk on that, on on the idea of, like, separating high culture or, or trash culture in that there's also the issue of who's making it. Like, is it a low-budget exploitation movie or mm-hmm. is it, like, a sort of corporate IP thing? Because I think there's a yes. ma- sure. massive yeah. difference sure. between yeah. that, too. There's a really big difference between, Agreed. like, well, we're just going to push out a, another sequel to... to Keep out our IP alive versus a small group of weirdos scraping (laughs) the change in the couch cushions together to make something that, while trashy and terrible, is also sometimes a little bit avant-garde in a fascinating Mm way.
3: Mm -hmm. No, I'm totally ready to see Mandy, Chainsaw and all. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so you've seen that one already. Okay, we have to take a quick break here. I do just quickly want to pause and say, you know, I taught a, I was teaching a class this spring. It was a political science class, and for it's a seminar, and for reasons that would take forever to um, explain, on the last day, I sort of had handed out a couple of awards, and two of them were Nicolas Cage pillows. Uh, and which people got if they caught me saying something incorrect in class. And, and those pillows, that exact pillow, is in this movie. I screamed when I saw them. Uh, anyway, we have to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll make some recommendations.
2: Ah, oh, here he comes now.
1: He's got that black book in his hand. And he says he's going to save all our souls. Your keys in your pocket
0: shoes are on
3: Time to say a quick thank you to Cat Pastor. She is uh, producing us technically uh, as our technical producer. Uh, Jonathan McPants always produces the nose, at least whenever possible, uh, and he's doing so today. Uh, and it's time to make some recommendations. Bill Usman, why don't you get us going?
0: Okay, I think uh, this I think is going to be a first for me on the nose. I'm going to recommend a reality. TV series. It tends not to be my jam. um, But this one, I think is really, really good. Lori and I have recently been watching a show on Showtime called couples therapy, uh, which takes a real therapist, and real clients uh, who have obviously agreed to be a part of this. And it, you know, it slices and dices, obviously, but it takes you right inside their therapy sessions. I think it's fascinating. I I know I'm the guy who earlier today said, you know, stay out of personal lives. Hmm. So I'm contradicting myself a little bit. But this show really seems to be I, I, I don't think it's maybe people would argue with me. I don't think it's exploitative the way reality TV generally tends to be. I think it's really about the um the therapeutic relationship and, you know, how that unfolds and it does really interesting stuff about what 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 happens when it's a white therapist and you know per, perhaps non-white uh couples who are hmm. who are going to her for therapy I just think it's really interesting in a way that i would not have expected and it's on And, its and we,
3: we would not have expected you bill useman to uh, to no. recommend this particular show so maybe it's billy maybe it's your 1990s alter ego who really likes the show uh all right well uh, so uh but it's couples therapy it's on showtime um raquel benedict what are you going to recommend to us
1: I will recommend Sayaka Murata's new short story collection, Life Ceremony. I, I believe it's her first collection that was translated into English. She is the author of the amazing, weird, novel, convenience store woman that got really, really popular. And her, her collection is fantastic. I just got it. It's full of short stories. It, she has this amazingly breezy style that makes it somehow more... Key- either more disturbing or mal- more palatable that she's writing about such bizarre things as like cannibalism and murder. And <laughs> it is phenomenal. She's an amazing writer. Probably one of my favorites.
3: Sounds like the perfect thing to read to your nine-year-old on a camping truck. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, so see the name of the the collection again.
2: Life Ceremony.
3: Life Ceremony. All right. Uh, and Sam Hattleman, what are you going to recommend to us?
2: Uh, I'm going to recommend something kind of uh similar to the first topic. Um you know everyone's going to tell you that Drake and Beyoncé are the people who brought club and house into the popular locus, but uh kids in New Jersey and Philadelphia have been doing it for like the past couple of years and it's really fun. It's really bouncy. I tried to recommend it for song of the summer, but I'm cursed. Every time I like want to recommend this like nobody song that nobody's heard of, like a month later it gets really popular. So I'm going to recommend the song Uh, it's by Too Rare. It's called Cupid's Remix. It's a remix of an old 112 song. Um, Get to it before your teenager bullies you into listening to it.
3: Right. Cupid's Remix, and the artist is...
2: Too rare with the two, like the number.
3: Too rare with the two, the number. All right. Well, thanks so much for that. So um, I quickly want to just sort of say one more thing about the Nick Cage thing because it just didn't come up in time. But there is, I mean, I've been making this joke about Bill Usman, but there's this kind of de-aged version uh, of, of Nick Cage in this movie. He's referred to as Nicky. I only recently found out that... He's actually based on a very specific Nicolas Cage moment, uh, and it's apparently on a TV show circa 1990 in England called Wogan. I think it's called Wogan, where he just came on stage and flipped out and was throwing money at the audience and doing karate kicks and So that's exactly, that's who they're locking onto. It's not even just sort of a generically young Nicolas Cage, uh, for my recommendation, I'm going to recommend, well, I'm very excited and I want to do a nose episode about the old man. This is a Jeff Bridges, John Lithgow uh, project as an old man. Obviously I'm going to like it. And I love Jeff Bridges. Anyway, he's another person who, I don't know how many movies he's made, but you could probably watch 10 Jeff Bridges, Bridges movies that you've never watched before. And you'd see maybe six pretty good ones too. You might watch some really bad ones as well. Uh, But Bridges, you know, he's just moved in. I mean, he almost died twice while making this movie, once from uh, cancer and once from COVID. Uh, But, you know, that gravelly voice that we've gotten used to that is sort of a latter period thing uh, and and this character and – We'll talk all, a lot about it when we actually do the thing on the news. But Amy Brenneman is also just – Amy Brenneman is an actor who probably is a little bit underrated and just keeps getting better and better and, like, finding new places to go in the roles that she plays. And she's terrific at it, too. So uh, watch The Old Man because you got to get ready for the news when we talk about it. Uh, great to visit with all of our wonderful guests today. So thanks very much to Sam and Raquel and Bill and Pants and Kat. And we'll be back. It's cozy
0: <laughs> like a cracker bell. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this, and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of fact, oh yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain,
2: Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we the race.